They think he was born somewhere in what is now London, but at the time would have been like the out, like far outskirts. So it would have been like a, a small village or town that has now been kind of like encompassed by London. So, so he had to <laughs> abolish Congress because he could never be president. <laughs> I mean, yeah, couldn't be president. Hi, and welcome to Halfwit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a podcast where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. Not super long ago, but kind of long ago. I mean, kind of long ago for our standards, I think. <laughs> I'm Well, I mean, yeah, probably. We've done some really old stuff, though, too. Yeah. Well, we're both in the 1800s. Yes. Yeah. Uh, do we have any updates from last week? I don't. Me neither. Let's Woo-hoo. just get right into it. We- I'm continuing my lightly spooky theme of looking at deaths for the month of October. Uh, Kylie called it morbid last time. Just a little bit. (laughs) Sure. So I was only looking at deaths. This week I'm going with someone very well known because their life, death, and works are also spooky. uh, Which is convenient because it all happened in October. Oh! (laughs) So on October 7th of 1849, the author and poet Edgar Allan Poe dies in Baltimore at the age of 40. Ah, I see. So a quick recap on Edgar Allan Poe in case for some reason there are some listeners who don't know his legacy. Yikes. Edgar Allan Poe was born on January 19th of 1809 in Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, I did not know that. Uh, I didn't know that either. (laughs) Uh, And the reason we don't know that is because he was, um, when he was just a year old, his father left his family. Oh. And then his mother died soon afterwards. Oh. So. Oh. Yep. So he was orphaned young, which I did know that. And he was adopted by the Allens of Richmond, Virginia, where he lived until uh, until he was a young adult. Aha. Yep. He attended both University of Virginia and West Point Military Academy, both of which he eventually dropped out of. But he did finish like this. Was, he did finish school and he did finish a military academy mm-hmm. at some point. I ended up reading further along, but the two big ones was Virginia and West Point. The first he dropped out due to finances and the latter he dropped out to pursue his career as a writer, which he had loosely started before joining West Point. Fair enough. Um, I feel like for him that was a good choice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it worked out in his benefit. Supposedly he was a very good military officer, though. Interesting. Yeah, so he was I going never... to West Point as like a secondary education in military. I never would have guessed that from Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> yeah, he. I think I saw that he fought in a war in for for like Greek independence or something oh. like that. He was okay. he was out there. Okay. And he also did something with Russia. I don't I don't remember, but I briefly skimmed across that. Interesting. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe war had something to do with where he got his uh, morbid subject matter. Maybe. <laughs> so he was actually one of the first American writers to try and make a living exclusively from his art without already having a partner or prior publication arrangement. Wow. So he was an uh, independent author. Gutsy. It was really difficult because we didn't have copyright laws at that time. Ugh. So publishers, after receiving work, 
to look at and publish, they would just kind of sell them and not pay the authors on time. Oh. Or sometimes never at all. Oh. So that likely happened with a lot of Poe's works. He first received recognition for an adventure story called Manuscript Found in a Bottle, which hmm. followed a group of sailors caught in a tempest recounting the days left until of their survival. Oh. Yep. This work earned him his first job at a well-known Baltimore magazine where he would publish many of his first short stories, poems, and literary critiques. He was also a, a literature critic. Oh, cool. That's where he probably got most of his money. Was yeah. Critiquing literature, not writing his own. That makes sense. <laughs> yep, but he, pub- he published his own while doing literary critiques. From then on, he was let go and rehired by a few different papers, including the first one that he ever started working at, due his f- to his frequent encounters with and low tolerance for alcohol. Ah, ha, ha. Hmm. In 1845, Poe would publish his poem, The Raven, in a publication called The Evening Mirror. He was paid $9. Oh, all right. Yep. But it would end up making him a household name fairly quickly for the time. From then on, he would become widely regarded as one of the best mystery writers of the time and even considered the artist who popularized detective fiction with his work The Murders in Rue Morgue. His early works generally had more to do with adventure, his middle works were mysteries, and his late works were heavily focused on the illness, death, and the macabre. Hmm. Yep. (laughs) That's what most people remember him for, is his late works. Yep. Well, yeah. I I think I'm probably the most familiar with The Raven. Yes. Yeah. The Raven and then The Macabre. (laughs) Yeah. So... Personally, one of my favorite poems by Poe was called The Bells. It was published in 1849 after his death. In the poem, Poe describes what different bells sound like, evoking a very common story once it's all put together. He starts with silver bells that jingle and tingle, golden bells that rhyme and chime with liquid ditty floats. (laughs) Next, the brazen or bronze bells with their clanging, jangling, sinks and swells. And finally, the iron bells with rust in their throats, moaning and groaning. I've noticed that I really like short stories and poems that use senses to tell a story. That makes sense. Yeah. So if you can't really tell what the theme there is, a lot of people analyze that it's the cycles of life and death. Mm -hmm. So being young and getting in the poem, he compares the golden bells to like the time in your life when you would get married. Yeah. And like doves and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah. the, the brazen bells, uh, brazen bells were used for alarms. Like, those are the things that you think of when you think of, like, an old-timey firehouse. Yeah. Like, just slamming so, yeah. a bell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, that's where you get, like, the clanging, jangling, sinks and swells, because it's, like, it's getting louder and quieter as it goes by yeah. you. And I'm, like, envisioning one of those, like, really early, like, super early, um, like, fire trucks that were, like, the, like, barely chugging along but like there's a fire like a fire volunteer fireman like standing on the back of it ringing the bell on the back of the fire truck that's like what i see yeah and then obviously the iron bells are supposed to be like um you know the solemn ringing of like church bells like death yeah (laughs) (laughs) the the rust in its throat which i thought was a cool use of both iron and like trying to think of Imagery because iron would rust and rusty throat and yeah, it, I think it worked really well. Uh, side note: If you are the same as me and really like sense evocative stories, H.P. Lovecraft's *The Beast in the Cave* follows a character who becomes lost on a tour of a cave, eventually so lost that there isn't any more light for him to see. The story continues by being described only from what the character can hear 
as something else joins him in the quiet, damp darkness. Uh-oh. So I, I really like that story just because it also, it, it's like eliminating a sense and writing about what you hear mm-hmm. is just interesting to me. Because yeah. writing is always trying to get you to visualize something and visual visualize so everyone writes what you see. Yep. So it's, it's, I like when people write things about what you hear. Yeah. Anyways, back to the death of Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. <laughs> I was originally interested in doing this last week when I ran into a brief snippet detailing that on October 3rd of 1849, Poe was found delirious in a gutter and that it would be the last public appearance before he died. I saw that one too. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to do that one. But then I found out that he died the very next week, this week, and Mm -hmm. decided I would wait until this episode. Fair enough. Yep. So I didn't know much about Poe's death. The only thing that I thought I knew was that it was rumored to be a suicide and that he was buried in an unmarked grave um, originally. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of my information for what I'm going to talk about now comes from The Still Mysterious Death of Edgar Allan Poe, a great article written by Natasha Geiling with the Smithsonian Online Magazine. Thanks for teaching me some new things. (laughs) Uh, So when I searched for information on his uh, delirious episode in the gutter, I came came across the aforementioned article that mentioned that there were many theories as to what led to Poe's demise. Strangely, I didn't see suicide listed in her article. Interesting. Yep. So I looked up where that may have came from, and the only reference that I found um, to anything more than just mentioning it being a theory was a comment from someone who must have been an acquaintance of Poe's or at least studied him in that time named uh, Charles Baudelaire, and he lived in France, and he was quoted after seeing um, after seeing that Poe had died that he believed his death was, quote, almost a suicide or a suicide prepared for a long time. Mm. That is the only reference to suicide in Edgar Allan Poe that I could find. Interesting. I think I thought it was, like, a result of the alcohol. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to that, too. (laughs) Like, liver failure or something. Yeah. So I can only imagine that this one quote kind of took hold because of the content of Poe's work, and people found it easy to latch on or retell because of Poe's alcoholism, and um, not too long before his death was the death of his wife. Anyways, if you've heard the suicide myth like I had, dispel it. It's not true. Yep. So, quick note before I start talking about the real theories, um, the cause of death was listed as phrenitis or swelling of the brain. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yep. So, major theories on what have actually caused his death are carbon... Boston accent there. (laughs) Carbon monoxide poisoning, heavy metal poisoning, the flu, a random beating, an intentional murder, rabies, a brain tumor... (laughs) Alcohol and something called cooping. I don't know what that is. Me neither. Did you um, look it up? Yes. Oh, okay. Cool. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna start with taking out the flu, carbon monoxide, heavy metal, the beating, and the murder. All right. With the exception of the flu, which could have happened to literally anyone, yeah. not just back then, but today. Like there, I th- I think the stat is there's a million deaths per year because of the flu. I don't remember what the stat is, but there's always. A lot more than I think there should be. (laughs) Yeah. The last I remember looking up is at some point, I remember a stat saying that since 2010, there have been about 10 million deaths from the flu. Wow. I don't know if that's worldwide or just... Probably worldwide. That's probably worldwide. Um, But flu's common, and it can lead to 
some of the symptoms that Poe was exhibiting. So yeah, I figure I take it out. It's not really worth talking about. <laughs> Fair enough. Yep. And then the beating and the murder kind of can fall into the cooping, which we'll talk about now. All right. Yeah. So this was the first time I'd heard about it, and it was a practice that was commonly employed by two groups, the military and politicians. Ah, hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the combo I want. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, So what would happen is someone would hire gangs to roam the streets, either looking for already drunk men, men that were easy to beat up, or men that were gullible. Hence why I took out the beating up, because it was kind of part of this. And they've get those people to follow the gang back to the coop. In a coop would be all of the people they've gathered during the day or night, and they would be given alcohol until they comply with whatever goals the gang's employer had. If they failed to comply, they were normally beaten into submission, or in some instances, killed. Oh. Yep. For the military, the goal was to get them drunk enough to enlist. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Oh, no. And we know about this from a letter sent to the House of Representatives by Brigadier General Hinks in 1865. In the letter, Hinks described that the quality of troops was declining due to cooping. Ah. A, a practice that, quote, whereby men were cooped up, plied with drink to the point of stupefaction, and tricked into enlisting. Oops. So this was admitted by someone in the in the army that this was happening (laughs) to Congress in a letter. Oops. (laughs) Yep. And they were fed up with the quality of troops that they were getting because of it. Fair enough. And obviously for politicians, they needed votes. So the gangs would also, for for this instance, the gangs would also stock raggedy clothes, fake facial hair, and other costume pieces. Ah. Um, Also, they would take the original clothes from the men that they would eventually disguise. They would then be sent out to voting locations to vote for the selected politician, and on their return would be given more alcohol or drugs, changed into new clothes, and sent out to vote again. I see. Yep. The reason this has become a common belief for Poe was that when he was found delirious and hallucinating in the gutter, he was dressed in raggedy clothes that were not his own. Oh, Um, interesting. Yep. And that there was an election um, the night before Poe was found in the gutter. Oh, okay. So, so both of those things kind of coincide. Yeah, and if he already had a perchant for uh, drinking. Yeah. Mm. Yep. So since he's also a known alcoholic uh, who was currently attempting to be sober at that point. Oh, yes, poor guy. The temptation of alcohol seems really plausible. Yeah. So now we move on to the theory of him drinking himself nearly to death being plausible as well. There were many accounts of him not being able to hold even a single glass of champagne. This was also something noted in Poe's sister, so it could have been hereditary. Oh, interesting. Yep. However, this theory does get a hole poked in it because we learn later, we learn that in a later study of his hair that he showed very, very low levels of lead, which at the time was more commonly found in alcohol. Or in alcohol bottling or the metals used for capping. Yeah. So lead was more common in alcohol for a bunch of reasons. Not that it was like intentionally put there, but the things they made it in. happened. Yeah. No one realized that it was deathly, so. Yeah. So it was used everywhere. Um, But Poe's hair that they studied when he died didn't contain lead. Interesting. Yep. All right. So likely he was sober. 
And this is supported by the fact that Poe actually joined a group a few months beforehand to help him quit drinking alcohol after a physician had um, told him that the types of delirium attacks that he was having could be caused from drinking and the next attack could possibly kill him. Mm. So also kind of points back to maybe drinking killed him. He was told that more drinking would kill him. That's true. But they also didn't find lead in his hair, so maybe he wasn't drinking, and he'd been reported by friends and acquaintances that he was actually pretty good about not drinking after that point and hadn't been for a few months. Wow. Yeah. Um, So unfortunately, even though we have all of that, the leader of the group that Poe had joined quickly associated his death with a relapse binge and spread the word as far as they could in order to get people to join their movement. Rude. Yeah, so probably why you assumed alcohol is because of this guy. (laughs) Sounds like a jerk. Yep. The next one is rabies. There was a study done in 1996 where physicians at a conference were were given patient information with just initials and known symptoms. A doctor named Michael Benitez was given symptoms of a patient with the initials EP. The symptoms included uh, lethargy, confusion, delirium, hallucinations, shallow breathing, and variable heart rate that was regularly rapid. The patient succumbed to death just four days after being admitted, and Dr. Benitez showed that this patient clearly had rabies. All of the symptoms were present, and the average time of death after symptoms present in this drastic way is the same as the time the patient experienced, which was four days. So he showed okay. these... Poe showed these symptoms in on October 3rd and died on October right. 7th. yeah. So even the time of death after presenting was matching up with rabies. Um, this was the first time that anyone had diagnosed Poe without actually knowing who was being diagnosed. Interesting. So there was no... Or assume, assumedly, whoever this, this Dr. Benitez... Saw initials EP, probably didn't think anything of it. Um, he knew that he came from Richmond, so maybe the guy could have put it together. But, yeah, maybe. But it's assumed that the guy had no idea that this was Poe because he didn't come up with the standard, this is how Poe died. Right. So there were, like, some pieces that maybe he could have been unbiased, but or could have been biased. Yeah. But it's not likely. So this is considered the first time Poe's been diagnosed without knowing it was Poe. Yeah. Which kind of puts a, a little bit of credit to the fact that maybe it was rabies. Yeah, and I mean, like, I don't know anything about rabies, really. Well, one thing that does discredit rabies oh. <laughs> uh, is that something that I didn't know is that when you're infected with rabies, you develop hydrophobia, the that fear of water. That I did know. I didn't know that. I knew that one. Yeah. I. That's, like, one of the only things I know about rabies is that people who have it or like animals that have it are very like like they want nothing to do with water so like if you're trying to get someone to drink because they're acting ill they're very adamant that they don't want water kind of thing i don't know why that's the only information i know but it is (laughs) (laughs) well something i didn't know Uh, but anyways records show that poe was regularly drinking water in the hospital until the day he died Okay, well. So maybe it wasn't rabies, but it's kind of interesting that he does present all of the same symptoms as rabies and that someone caught this centuries later. So lastly is the brain tumor. Okay. Remember how I earlier mentioned that Poe was buried in an unmarked grave? Mm Mm-hmm. A memorial was eventually placed at that graveyard for Poe, and then sometime later they found Poe's casket. 
and moved it to the marked location. However, Poe's casket was rather plainly made and had deteriorated. So when they went to move the casket, it Uh-oh. broke, and what remained of Poe's corpse fell out. Ooh. When it did, the people who reported um, the people who reported it also reported a mass that was rolling around in his skull. And a newspaper reported that it was Poe's brain, still intact after three years, just shriveled. Much later, a author, Matthew Pearl, ended up writing about Poe and found a forensic pathologist and asked about this in his report. Um, The forensic pathologist told him that brains are one of the first parts to rot in a corpse. Mm -hmm. So the mask could not have been Poe's brain. However, tumors are known to calcify in death. So supposedly, Ah. this is also backed by a record of one of Poe's doctors telling him that there's a chance he might have a lesion on his brain, which could be part of what's causing such a strong reaction to alcohol. Interesting. Yep. Okay. And then also remember, this seems to fit the diagnosis of having died from brain swelling to a degree. Yeah. So not exactly brain swelling, but Mm -hmm. maybe it was the tumor. So it might his actual cause of death that they wrote on... On his papers. Might not have might been not have that been. wrong. Yeah, might not have been that wrong. It's All these theories, uh, you know, people kind of like to look into it because he was a mystery writer. Yeah. And, you know, there are some mysterious things about it, like him showing up. Um, I saw something else that he was actually missing for a few days before he showed up delirious in the gutter. Oh, okay. So, like, that would still support him being kept in a coop and mm-hmm. told to vote, told to vote, told to vote before he got let go. Yeah. I, um... I was totally on board with the rabies, and now I'm totally on board with the brain tumor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the calcified mask kind of does it a little yeah. bit. <laughs> but who knows? You might not have died from the brain tumor. That's it true. Still it could have been, been, yeah. Or it could have been rabies, or it could have been the cooping or whatever, and yeah. it just there happened to be a brain tumor. Yeah. Who so, knows? Anyways, that's what I learned about the death of Edgar Allan Poe. All right. Fun. Well, not really fun, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's spooky time. Death can be fun. <laughs> so we're going to jump ahead um, 10 years. Oh, <laughs> not too far. <laughs> not very far, no. Did you know that at one point in time, the U.S. had an emperor? I actually did. I hate you so much. <laughs> no. I saw this when I was scrolling, but I don't <laughs> know anything about it. All right. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. Okay, so one Joshua Abraham Norton proclaimed himself emperor of the United States, and on October 12, 1859, Emperor Norton I issued an edict forcefully abolishing the U.S. Congress. <laughs> so that's what we're going to talk about. What a mad lad. <laughs> yes. Um, so I saw that someone had um, proclaimed himself emperor of the United States and thought, well, this should be interesting. Mm-hmm. So here we are. I suppose um, you weren't wrong. Hmm. Well, it is interesting, but... I thought it would be more, like, heavily comedic interesting, mm-hmm. like, what a nut kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to, so turns out Norton wasn't really all that crazy and was actually quite well regarded in San Francisco, which is where he lived. Okay. Um, so let's find out a little bit more about this unique figure. <laughs> um, so Joshua Abraham Norton is believed to have been born in England on February 4th, 1818, to John Norton and his wife Sarah Norton, Norton, Norton and Norton. Huh. Yeah, I was real thrown by that. The birth date is based on the best evidence um, that like people could, can find, generally speaking. Um, although there's been significant debate as obituaries offer differing information. So oh. some 
Um, some things cite 1819 as his birth year, and other things cited as 1818. Do we know why we don't know? Um, there, there were um, conflicting um, discrepancies of, like, when he would, or not necessarily when he would say his age, but, like, records of, like, how old he thought he was at different points in time. Oh, okay. Um, so, but it, so he is crazy. Well, no, not, <laughs> I mean, it's a year difference. So oh, it's okay, very possible that, like... He may not have remembered his birthday, mm-hmm. or and so like at different points in the year, didn't realize that he was actually a year, theoretically a year older or something like that. Oh, that's not and bad. a lot of it's um, the reason this one is the most um, like used is because um, when their family moved to South Africa in early 1820, and on the passage of the ship, it is listed as him being two. Like, okay. he's listed as a two-year-old, which is why people think that is a, like, that's the more reliably used date. Um, but that didn't come to, like, light until after there had been, like, a biography or something written about him that had used 1819. Okay. So, 1818 is, like, the pretty, we're pretty confident in that one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... And then they know he was born in England. Um, they think he was born somewhere in what is now London, but at the time would have been like the out, like far outskirts. So it would have been like a, a small village or town that has now been kind of like encompassed by London. So, so he had to <laughs> abolish Congress because he could never be president. <laughs> I mean, yeah, couldn't be president. Um, so they moved to South Africa when he was two. Um as part of a government-backed colonization scheme um, where the participants came to be known as the 1820 settlers. So many of the 1820 settlers were poor and were encouraged by the Cape government to settle in the Eastern Cape in an attempt to strengthen the Eastern frontier against the neighboring Kosa people and to provide a boost to the English-speaking population of South Africa. So poor people trying to find a like, new place to live where maybe they wouldn't be so poor. But the whole colonization of Africa thing is not great. So we're going to just like move on. That's a whole. (laughs) That's a whole other kettle of fish. And I don't have time. (laughs) So it wasn't until November of 1849 that Joshua Norton came to the United States. He's believed to have arrived in San Francisco aboard the Francesca. It's claimed he arrived with $40,000 in whole or in part from a bequest of his father's estate. But there hasn't been any, like, real substantiating information to support that claim. But he did have something when he came. Okay. Um, What's known, however, is that with um, whatever he started out with, he set himself up in the real estate and import brokerage business. And before long, had parlayed the sizable amount into a respectable fortune. By applying shrewd business practices to a variety of ventures, he said to have accumulated about a quarter of a million dollars by 1853. Oh, boy. So he did pretty good for himself. He became one of the most prosperous, respected citizens of the city, enough to be invited to join the elite San Francisco Vigilance Committee. Um, So unfortunately, his luck kind of ran out in um, December of 1852, so like, Right at the end of his, you know, peak or whatever. Norton thought he saw a business opportunity when China, which was facing a severe famine, placed a ban on the export of rice, which caused the price of rice in San Francisco to skyrocket from four um, from four to 36 cents per pound. Um, so that's a real big, it's mm-hmm. a real big price hike, especially for that time. Um, so when he heard of a ship returning from Peru that was carrying t- 200,000 pounds of rice, he bought the entire shipment. For twenty five thousand dollars, 
um, which was at about 12 cents per pound, a little bit over. His plan was to corner the rice market. Yep. Yep. Shortly after he signed the contract, several other shiploads of rice arrived from Peru, causing the price of rice to plummet to three cents a pound. Oh, no. Yep. Norton tried to void the contract, stating that the dealer had misled him and that the quality of ri- um, about like the quality of the rice, like saying it was bad, essentially. Right. From 1853 to 1856, Norton and the rice dealers were involved in a protracted litigation. Although he prevailed in the lower courts, the case reached the Supreme Court of California and ruled against him. Later, the Lucas Turner and Company Bank foreclosed on his real estate holdings in North Beach to pay his debt. And he filed for bankruptcy. So, honestly, if he just hadn't tried to fight them in court, he probably wouldn't have ended up as bad off as he was. Oops. Yeah, because he had a loss, but he, like, theoretically, he could have recouped some of it. But by doing those lengthy legal battles, he essentially spent the rest of the money that he had. Oh, no. Whoopsies. Yeah. Um, so the PBS source that I that was one of the things that I looked at as an article um, claims that the abrupt change of circumstances appeared to have driven him mad. By 1859, Norton had become completely discontented with what he considered the inadequacies of the legal and political structure of the U.S. On September 17th, 1859, he took matters into his own hands and distri- uh, distributed letters to the various newspapers in the city proclaiming himself emperor of these United States. His statement read, At the preemptory request and desire of a large majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Agola Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and now for the last nine years and ten months past of San Francisco, declare and proclaim myself emperor of these United States. And in virtue of the authority thereby to me invested, do hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the Union to assemble in musical hall of this city on the first day of February next, then and there to make such alterations in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate the evils under which the country is laboring, and thereby cause confidence to exist both home and abroad in our stability and integrity." Signed, Norton I, Emperor of the United States. Norton I. Yep. (laughs) So the announcement was first printed for humorous effect by the editor of the San Francisco Daily Evening Bulletin. Norton would later add Protector of Mexico to his title and thus began his whimsical 21-year reign over America. (laughs) I I like that uh, back, you know, 100-something years ago (laughs) that we were trying to be protectors of Mexico. Yeah, about that. <clears throat> so <laughs> he's just a visionary ahead of his time. Well, at one point he d- he eventually dropped that title because um it was too hard to rule those unruly people from abroad. So Oops. yeah, well, anyway. That all race. Um. So he issued many decrees as emperor. The first being the reason we're talking about him, um, which is the attempt to formally abolish the United States Congress. In it, he observed, fraud and corruption prevent a fair and proper expression of the public voice, that open violation of the laws are constantly occurring, caused by mobs, parties, factions, and undue influence of political sex, that the citizen has not that protection of person and property to which he is entitled. <laughs> Jonathan's just like shaking his head. <laughs> so... Norton ordered all interested parties to assemble at Platt's Music Hall in San Francisco to remedy the evil complained of. 
I couldn't figure out if anyone actually went to said meeting or if it actually happened. But I'm just going to kind of coast to the idea that someone would have been like, what the heck is this all about? I'm just going to go look kind of thing. At least one person goes to every rally. It doesn't matter how crazy it is. (laughs) That would have been me. I would have been the one being like, what is this nutcase doing? I just kind of want to (laughs) watch. So the following month, um, Norton issued an imperial decree summoning the army to depose the elected officials of the U.S. Congress. Unsurprisingly, his decree was ignored by the army and Congress likewise continued without any formal acknowledgement of Norton or his orders. Further decrees in 1860 ordered dissolution of the Republic and forbade the assembly of any members of the former Congress. Um, So he tried to abolish the U.S. (laughs) as a whole. (laughs) Um, He issued a mandate in 1862 ordering both the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant churches to publicly ordain him emperor, hoping to resolve the many disputes that had resulted in the Civil War. Norton then turned his attention to other matters, both political and social. He declared the abolition of the Democratic and Republican parties on August 12th, 1869. Here, here. <laughs> being desirous of allaying the dissensions of party strife now existing within our realm. However, Norton was occasionally surprisingly astute, and some of his imperial decrees exhibited profound foresight. He issued instructions to form a League of Nations. He explicitly forbade any form of conflict between religions or their sects. And he decreed the con- uh, the construction of a suspension bridge or tunnel connecting Oakland and San Francisco. Huh. Hmm. His later decrees, however, became increasingly irritated at the lack of a lack of prompt obedience by the authorities. <laughs> Whereas we issue our decree ordering the citizens of San Francisco and Oakland to appropriate funds for the survey of the suspension bridge from Oakland Point via Goat Island, also for a tunnel. And to ascertain which is the best project, and where, whereas the said citizens have hitherto neglected to notice our said decree, and whereas we are determined our authority shall be fully respected, now, therefore, we do hereby command the arrest by the army of both the boards of city fathers, if they persist in neglecting our decrees. Oh. Given under our royal hand and seal this 17th day of September. This So this, um, and that was in 1872. So this one decree was actually carried out, um, just not in Norton's lifetime. Oh. So in 1933, construction started on the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge, which opened in 1936. The Trans Bay Tube followed in 1973, and its Wikipedia page actually acknowledges Norton as one of the earliest people to suggest an underwater rail tunnel trans, uh, trans, whew, traversing the San Francisco Bay. Yep. So, interesting. There's also a um, 1939 plaque honoring Emperor Norton for the original idea of the Bay Bridge um, that was dedicated by the Fraternal Society E. Clampus Vitus and was installed at the Cliff House in February of 1955. Um, In 18—oh, jeez, I don't know my numbers. 1986, in connection with the bridge's 50th anniversary, the plaque was then moved to the Transbay Terminal— which is where the public transit and Greyhound bus depot was at the west end of the bridge in downtown San Francisco. Um, when the terminal was closed in 2010, the plaque was placed in storage. Oh. I feel like you should go to a museum or something. Um, so there have even been campaigns to rename the Bay Bridge the Emperor Norton Bridge. 
In 2004, the campaign introduced a resolution to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors calling for the entire two-bridge system from San Francisco to Oakland to be named for Emperor Norton. The board even approved a modified version of this resolution calling for only new additions, so like um, there was a new eastern crossing to be named the Emperor Norton Bridge. But neither the city of Oakland nor Alameda County passed any similar resolutions, so the effort um, stalled. Oh. Yeah. Um, In 2013, nine state assemblymen, joined by two state senators, introduced the Assembly Concurrent Resolution No. 65 to name the western crossing of the bridge for former California Assembly Speaker and former San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown. Six weeks later, a grassroots petition was launched, again seeking to rename the entire two-bridge system for Emperor Norton. Um, in September of 2013, the petition's author launched a nonprofit, the Emperor's Bridge Campaign, that advocates for adding a name to honor Emperor Norton rather than renaming the whole bridge, um, and that undertakes the other efforts to advance his legacy. However, no part of the bridge has um, ever been renamed for Norton to date, so oh. sorry, guys. <laughs> um, Norton was an eccentric who spent his days inspecting San Francisco streets in an elaborate blue uniform with gold-plated epaulets given to him by officers of the United States Army post at the Presidio of San Francisco. He also wore a beaver hat decorated with a peacock feather and a rosette. He frequently enhanced this imperial posture with a cane or umbrella. During his inspections, he would examine the condition of the sidewalks and the cable cars, the state of repair of public property, and the appearance of the police officers. He would also frequently give lengthy philosophical expositions on a variety of topics to anyone who was within earshot. Norton did, however, attempt to care for and protect the people of his city. During the 1860s and 1870s, there were um, occasional anti-Chinese demonstrations in the poorer districts of San Francisco, and riots would uh, sometimes break out, sometimes resulting in uh, fatalities. During one incident, Norton allegedly positioned himself between the rioters and their Chinese targets. With a bowed head, he started reciting the Lord's Prayer repeatedly until the rioters dispersed without incident. Nice. So, good job, bud. Um, He was pestered at times with a few teasing hecklers, but on the whole, the citizens of San Francisco adopted the eccentric ex-merchant and actually afforded him the royal treatment that he demanded. He was allowed to eat in restaurants as... The guest of the owners, at his um, as his fame spread, the restauranteurs actually viewed, uh, vied for his royal patronage and approval. Transportation was provided free of charge, um, and at one point, the city provided an annual sum for the emperor's trappings. So, like to update his wardrobe. Um, at one point, the city paid, I think, to replace his outfit when it got too dirty. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, So to take care of any other physical needs of his royal person, Norton was even allowed to issue bonds, collect taxes from his subjects, or cash his own scripts, uh, payable by the agents of our private estate in case the government of Norton I does not hold firm, (laughs) which were printed free of charge by local printers. As a wise dictator, Norton was careful not to impose undue burdens on his subjects. His needs were modest, so his periodic demands on his subjects for financial assistance were kept to a minimum. As Norton made his way around the street of San Francisco, his royal court of two mongrel dogs would almost always be close by. What? Yep. (laughs) Royal court of two dogs. Yes. Okay. Noted for their exceptional ability to keep the rat population in check, Bummer and Lazarus were constant companions. (laughs) What name? I know. Um, 
Like the emperor himself, they soon found their way into the hearts of the citizens of San Francisco. When a new dis- uh, dog catcher took Lazarus into custody by mistake once, an angry mob voiced ra- vigorous protest, and city officials quickly announced that both dogs were to have free run of the city. But despite their freedom, they seemed to prefer following the emperor. At the, the free lunch counters especially, they would be seen at the heels of their king as they waited for him to toss them some choice morsels. Nice. <laughs> so he... he he loved his pets. So just good job, bud. Um, and, just saying, I like this guy more than uh, some current people. <laughs> in 1867, Norton was arrested by a special officer for the local auxiliary force. Uh, oh, um, local auxiliary force that were hired by neighborhood residents and business owners with the intention to commit him to um, involuntarily for treatment for a mental disorder. The arrest so outraged the citizens and sparked scathing editorials in the newspaper, including the Daily Alta, which wrote that he has shed no blood, robbed no one, and despoiled no country, which is more than can be said of his fellows in that line. <laughs> so the police chiefs... Uh, police chiefs... <laughs> police chiefs... <laughs> the police chief ordered Norton released and issued a formal apology on behalf of the police force, and Norton then granted an imperial pardon to the officer that arrested him. (laughs) So benevolent. (laughs) Um, The police officers of San Francisco thereafter saluted him as he passed in the street. Norton did receive some tokens of recognition for his position. In 1870, the U.S. Census lists Joshua Norton as 50 years old and residing at 624 Commercial Street, and his occupation is listed as emperor. Nice. However, it also notes that he was insane. Oh. <laughs> um, so up and a down. Um, Norton was a subject of many tales. One popular story suggested that he was the son of Emperor Napoleon III and that his claim of coming from South Africa was just a ruse to prevent persecution. Suggestions that Norton should marry Queen Victoria can hardly be t- taken as seriously though he is reported to have actually met Emperor Pedro II of Brazil. Rumors also circulated that he was supremely wealthy and was feigning poverty because he was miserly. Oh, absolutely. So like a Scrooge. Yes. Yep. A number of decrees were printed in local newspapers that were probably fraudulent, um, and it's believed that newspaper editors themselves drafted fictitious um, edicts to suit their own agendas, basically trying to make him look even nuttier than he did. Um... The San Francisco Museum and Historical Society maintains a list of the decrees that are believed to be genuine. And this is where I admit that the decree of October 12th, 1859 is likely fake. Oh, that's sucks. <laughs> I did not find that out until I was like done and I was like, it's too late. Yep. We're going for it. Um, it's not on the list from the Historical Society. However, the proclamations of Norton I, which was compiled by Joel... Um, Gaza's sacks and um, it's like from a really old article in um, I think um, like History Monthly or something like that um, does not note it uh, doesn't note it as a forgery um, but it did note many of the other suspected edicts that they think were forgeries um, but this one wasn't noted as that so 
Maybe. Maybe. It's like a 50-50 chance, I think, at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So on the evening of January 8th, 1880, Norton collapsed on the corner of California Street and DuPont Street, which is now Grant Avenue, in front of Old St. Mary's Cathedral while on his way to a lecture at the California Academy of Sciences. His collapse was immediately noticed, and the police officer on the beat hastened for a carriage to convey him to the city receiving hospital, um, according to the next day's obituary in the San Francisco Morning Call. Norton died before the carriage could arrive. The call reported, On the reeking pavement, in the darkness of a moonless night, under the dripping rain, Norton I, by the grace of God, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, departed this life. Two days later, the San Francisco Chronicle led its article on Norton's funeral with the headline, Le Roi est mort. It quickly became evident that Norton had died in complete poverty, contrary to those rumors of wealth. Five or six dollars in small change was found on his person, and a search of his room at the boarding house on Commercial Street turned up a single gold sovereign worth around $2.50. His possessions included his collection of walking sticks, his rather battered saber, a variety of headgear including a stovepipe, a derby, a red-laced army cap, and another cap suited to a martial bandmaster, an 1828 French franc, and a handful of the imperial bonds that he sold to Taurus at a fictitious 7% interest. <laughs> yeah. Um, there were fake telegrams purporting to be from Emperor Alexander II of Russia congratulating Norton on his forthcoming marriage to Queen Victoria, as well as from the President of France predicting that such a union would be disastrous to world peace. And this was all in his house? <laughs> yeah, in his, like, lodging house. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Also found were his letters to Queen Victoria and 98 shares of stock in a defunct gold mine. Oops. <laughs> yep. Emperor Norton was buried at the Masonic Cemetery with a purportedly two-mile-long fun- funeral cortege with 10,000 people lining the streets to see their emperor to his final rest. Nice. Although I did see a couple of articles that actually said 30,000 people. Oh, boy. Um, but I'm thinking 10 is probably a little bit more accurate. Yeah. Um, and it was the more frequently cited number. But... Maybe 30,000. Let's give this man 30,000. Let's give him 30,000. Hey, let's give him 50,000. Okay, stop. (laughs) Um, At some point during Norton's 21-year reign, he caught the attention of Samuel Clemens, then working as a newspaper man in San Francisco, but more better known as Mark Twain. Oh. While many details of Norton's life may have been forgotten, Twain immortalized him in the character of the king in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Oh, that's cool. Additionally, Robert Louis Stevenson made Norton a character in his 1892 novel, The Wrecker. Stevenson's stepdaughter, Isabel um, Isabel Osborne, mentioned Norton in her autobiography, This Life I've Loved, stating that he was a gentle and kindly man and fortunately found himself in the friendliest and most sentimental city in the world, the idea being let him be emperor if he wants to. San Francisco played the game with him. Very nice. And that is Emperor Norton I of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, I, yeah, I really, I was, like, cackling to myself as I was researching it because some things are just so weird, and then some things I'm like, he had a point. <laughs> yeah. He, he wasn't wrong. He wasn't crazy. Some, I mean, no, he, he was, was crazy. crazy. <laughs> but sometimes there, there was clarity. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so our call to action, as always, you can visit us at Halfwit History on Facebook and Twitter. You can find us at Halfwit Pod on Patreon, and you can find our website at halfwit history.com. And thank you to the fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find him on SoundCloud, and his, uh, his 
profile is in our show notes. Yeah. Check him out. Yeah. Um, also, uh, you know, send us reviews or yep. anything like that. Check us out on Apple Podcasts. Um, leave subscribe. That would be great. Um, if you want to leave a review, that would be even better. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, and it's the best way to kind of get, get us out more. There. Yeah, get more people listening and put out the word, so to speak. And speaking of listeners, if you want to send us an email at halfwitpod at gmail.com, We'd love to get some. If you have suggestions for new topics or just want to say hi, feel <laughs> or, free. Or have anything that you think we said wrong. I don't know. Who knows? I occasionally get corrections from my friends. So I'm open to critique, not criticism. Yes. <laughs> critique all you want. No criticism. <laughs> all right. Uh, fun fact time? Absolutely. My fun fact is in the year 1773. You go first. Okay. On October 12th of 1773, America's first asylum opens for persons of insane and disordered minds in Virginia, which works out because I picked it because it's kind of spooky. Um, and Edgar Allan Poe had some That's disorders. True. And yep. you also happen to pick someone who may have not all been there mm, either. No, he was um, a couple apple shy of a bushel. <laughs> Um, so my fun fact is from October 11th, 1983. The last hand-cranked telephones in the U.S. went out of service as 440 telephone customers in Bryant Pond, Maine, were switched over to direct dial. You Mainers. Yep. <laughs> Holdouts. And I sort of automatically assumed that it was going to be up in the county, like the northernmost reaches of Maine. No, it was. it's like that area is right by Sunday River. So, like, no excuse, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next week. Bye.